I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we have podcaster extraordinaire Eric Zimmer. Eric hosts the One New Feed podcast, a, a huge show that uh, I had the great privilege uh, to be a guest on, and then we had a conversation about having uh, Eric come over onto mine as well. Uh, so I hope you really enjoy what we talked about. We, we talk a lot about his uh, personal experience uh, with addiction in particular and what he was able to learn from that. And uh, I love the concept of, of Eric's show, uh, The One You Feed, because as you'll hear in the episode, it's based on the, the parable of uh, the two wolves. Uh, and the the one that you choose to feed, he he explains it much better <laughs> than I do. Uh, but of course, your choice is the is the uh, which of those two wolves you will feed. And in my personal case, I relate to that because it's this idea of um, hopelessness, of death, of everybody hates me, of depression and anxiety. The voices of depression and anxiety. That's one wolf uh, versus the other, the the one who gives me passion and. Uh, um, makes me do what I do and get out of, drag myself out of bed every morning, even when I don't want to. So, you know, that's the wolf that I try to feed with this show and, and with these conversations. Uh, that's my hunger to, to change the world, I guess. Uh, anyway, uh, before I torture his metaphor anymore, <laughs> before I torture his parable anymore, uh, here's my conversation with podcaster Eric Zimmer on So-Called Normal. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, making the time to come on, uh, especially after I was able to talk with you on your show not all that long ago. Yeah, it was a real pleasure having you on, and I am glad to be here with you now. So I'm interested in, uh, you know, when when I'm your guest, I don't get a chance to really ask any questions uh, or, or many questions of you, although I, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, we'll, we'll certainly uh, share that with our audience here, too. But uh, I'm always interested in knowing for people who are the ones who ask the questions, usually, as, as is the case for you, um, what your story is. Why do you do what you do? Um, who are you? Who is Eric Zimmer? Well, that's a pretty big and open-ended question. <laughs> I could answer that in a deep Zen sense, and I could say Eric Zimmer is no one. Or I could answer that in a more practical sense, where I would say that... Um, Eric Zimmer is everyone. Ever, is everyone, that's right. No. <laughs> I am the, I'm the host of the One You Feed podcast, which is um, you know a podcast where I interview people similar to you two about what it means to live a good life. I've been doing that for about five, God, it's got to be going on six years now. Before that, I was in the software startup industry for years. I started a solar energy company. Um, I do behavioral coaching now. How's that for an all over the place answer? That's that's a wonderful all over the place answer. Uh, tell me more about the the one you feed uh, the the podcast itself, but also the parable. Yeah, the the podcast is based on an old parable, and the old parable is that we all have two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, and it represents things like kindness, bravery, and love, and the other is the bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. and And the grandfather's telling this story to his grandson, and his grandson stops and says, "Well, grandfather, which one wins?" And the grandfather says, "The one you feed." So that parable is sort of the jumping off point that I ask all my guests as a way to kind of just start conversation and, and go deeper. Yeah. Why that? What what initially brought you, you know, you've been doing this for a few years now, but what was the initial tr attraction to that parable for you? Well, when I first heard the parable, it really struck me uh, 
very strongly. I was early in recovery from heroin addiction and it just, it made complete sense to me. I was at that point in my life where it had sort of been pointed out to me, like, here are the actions you can take that are going to lead to you getting better and staying alive and out of jail, or you can keep doing what you were doing, which is going to probably lead to going to jail, which I had a lot of jail time pending. I had hepatitis C, so death was, you know, was in the neighborhood. And so it was just really clear to me, which of these things am I going to feed? What am I going to do day to day with my choices and my action? And so it was really powerful to me then. I'm not quite sure what brought it to mind when I thought about doing a podcast. I think I was looking maybe for an orienting principle, but it just kind of it kind of just came to my mind like, oh, I could ask people that question. It would be a good jumping off point. The whole podcast kind of came to me without a whole lot of thought, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about the the heroin addiction. If you're, if you're comfortable digging more into that, I mean, that's a pretty powerful jumping off point or or starting point in your own story, it seems. Yeah. It was a long time ago now. Mm -hmm. You know, it certainly, I guess I got sober uh, off heroin when I was 24, 25 years old. So that was I won't tell everybody how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, but I was, what was what was going on in your life, you know, at that time that that got you to that place, you know, where you where you're addicted to heroin. I mean, um, give us a picture of what somebody's life looks like to get to get there. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't, you know, it wasn't like I lived this terribly traumatic right. and awful life. Right. Um, you know, I grew up upper middle class. Um, you know, I went to high school uh, in a in a decent in a decent suburban school, you know, I was always in trouble. I was in trouble from as young as I can remember being, you know, I just, you know, whether it was shoplifting or stealing or vandalism or not going to school or pick your, pick your thing. I kind of was always troubled, I think. And, you know, I, I won't bore everybody with, with all the reasons why necessarily right here. Um, but they're, they're kind of, you know, the usual adverse childhood experiences, right? right? Not, you know, not knowing how, to deal with the emotions that came in my case. I think I'm probably a highly sensitive person. And so that takes some, some care. And I didn't, I didn't get any of that, but the long and short of it was, I just, when I was 18, I started drinking. I had actually been sober, hadn't really drank before that. I did a little bit, but then I stopped because I had formed a tutoring program for inner city kids. And when I saw what drugs and alcohol were doing to those kids' families and their lives, I was like, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, But then I was in a lot of pain from a breakup and somebody said, do you want to drink? And I said, sure. And I took it and it was kind of like a switch flip. And I was kind of off to the races for the next six years, really, which started with drinking and then marijuana and just sort of escalated into you know, it was a full scale kind of heroin addiction. And I was pretty much homeless living in the back of a van. I mentioned I had uh, a lot of jail time. I was in a lot of trouble with the police. It was kind of a fast descent in my case. Do you, do you Um, think that, did you have an, an addictive personality, whatever that means anyway? Did you tend toward addiction? Probably. Although I don't know that I had a lot of chance to really explore necessarily. Um, but yeah, I was always a little intense. Yeah. Now, you know, I was always intense. And do you think that you mentioned uh, as a highly sensitive person and and as a guy at that, was that something that wasn't, you know, my own experience personally is that you never really learn as a guy how to talk about your emotions because you're not supposed to feel emotions because you're a man, right? (laughs) I don't know if if, if you had that kind of experience too, but, but did you feel that 
you were at a disadvantage for being a, a male and a highly sensitive male at that. Yeah, I don't think I could have articulated any of that probably at right. that time. I can still barely um, I do think, that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, th- I think what, what probably happened to me was as a, re- as a reaction to the masculinity around me, I may have embraced feeling too strongly. Right. Right. I may have gone too far into, I'll feel whatever is there to feel, you know, it's, it's that, you know, the question I always think is so funny is, you know, which came first, the, the, you know, the depression or the listening to the Smiths and the cure kind of thing, right? Like <laughs> what precedes what? Um, Not to say anything against the Smiths and the cure. No, no, no I, I love those bands, but, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's fairly uh, morose for, uh, sure. for, uh, you know, to be, you know, I think about some of the lines from some of those songs now and I look back and I'm like, my goodness, at like 17, I'm singing songs about how my my life is over. And right. Like I was 17. I mean, it was just, so I, you know, I don't know what all, all was there, but I do know that when alcohol got reintroduced, right. um, I took to it like a, like a drowning person. I just, I was rarely sober from when I started until I got sober. I just, it was full speed ahead for me. Yeah. Um, and it was an answer for me for a long time. I loved it. And it, 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 you know, I think it made me feel wonderful for a long time until, right. of course, it didn't. Well, that's that's something I've, I've talked to a few people on the show so far who have um, battled addiction. And it seems like many of them who go that route are running from something, escaping, uh, often trauma, uh, or they like the, the social interaction. They like the groups of friends. They like being a part of something else. What what do you think it was for you or, or maybe a combination of both? I think for me... I mean, it's probably a combination, but I think for me that what, what drugs mostly did for me, drugs and alcohol, and, and it's hard to say because heroin was at the tail end of a pretty long stretch of, of drinking. But I think in general, what drugs and alcohol do for me is they actually connect me to mm. life. Okay. I think that in the absence of them, I can feel fairly dead inside. Right. Um, I've, I've dealt with depression, you know, ever since I got sober. And my depression is the sort of classic, just dead inside feeling. Right. And so what happens is alcohol and drugs for me, they wake me up to life. I'm like, yeah. Yes, I want to do this and I want to do that. They, 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 there's an old line in a, an old movie called Days of Wine and Roses. And, and one of the characters, when she's trying to get sober, you know, she's, she says this line and it's always struck with me, you know, when, when I'm, you know, normal life is like black and white to me, but when I drink, it's like the, the colors all come on. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that summarizes me, you know, now, how did I get to that stage? I, you know, I don't know. How did I get sure. dead probably by trying not to feel things when it was in, you know, when I was, when I was told it was not appropriate to feel them or, or maybe it's just a genetic, my family depression seems to run in it. So I don't know, but for me, it was, at least it seemed to me less an escape than it was. Well, it was an escape. It was escape from feeling dead inside. Right. Right. So now, you know, you must use that experience yourself every day doing your own podcast and talking to people. I, I would think, I mean, I, I can certainly relate to a number of the, the things that you're sharing. Um, has that been your experience with guests you've had on your show too? Well, you know, I, I stayed sober about nine years at that point after mm-hmm. I got, after I got sober and then I went out and I drank again for a few years and now mm-hmm. I've been back about 12 or 13 years. Um, so yeah, I do use those experiences. I mean, they're, 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 they're interwoven into, into who I am. Right. I don't think there's any separating them out for me. Who would I be without those is, is feels like a nonsensical question. Right. Um, I have no idea who I would be my whole adult life largely has either been yeah. sober or 
in sobriety, but it's been a, it's been a big part of, of, um, who I am, I guess. Sure. You know, I've, I've, um, thought a lot about this in, in terms of, uh, the, the worst things in our life, the worst aspects of us and what we're challenging ourselves to find what we're grateful for in the struggle, not to silver lining it or, or, you know, make it Pollyannish or anything like that, but what else are you going to do? Right. <laughs> might as well, at least this is how I've treated my own struggle is I might as well use it for something, for something good, ideally. Um, so sometimes for people, this is challenging, but what would you, is there anything that you're grateful for, uh, in, in the these worst moments of your life? Well, I guess from where I sit, I'm grateful for all of them. Again, because mm. I couldn't imagine who I would be without them. You know, I doubt I'd be doing a podcast about spiritual, mental, and emotional health if I hadn't had those issues. Right, right. right. So, so the spiritual piece, do you find that comes in? I mean, that's what the podcast is about, sure. But does that come into these equations a lot for you? I think, you know, it's interesting. I'm starting a... Uh, I'm involved in a in a program for for uh, training of spiritual directors, and one of the things I've had to do is think about a spiritual autobiography. So I've kind of been thinking about these ideas, right? And um, yeah, I think a, a spirituality is a big part of my life. You know, in the twelve step program, they say you need to find a higher power in order to stay sober, um, and I think that all my drugs and alcohol was a search for connection. And I do think that's what spirituality is about for me. It's about a deeper connection. And that connection can look lots of different ways, depending on how you want to define it. It can be your, to yourself. It can be to others. It can be to something bigger. It can be to a divine being. It can be to nature. But, but I think connection is kind of the name of the game. Mm. And so that, that's kind of, for me, what my spirituality has been about. Spirituality to me is just sort of a understanding that there's something deeper going on than what appears on the surface. Right. And have you channeled that? Uh, I guess the, the way to speak of it is channeling it. But have you channeled that into a, a religion, a particular religious tradition? Or do you identify more as um, spiritual but not religious? I think I would identify as spiritual but not religious overall, mm -hmm. although I've been mostly drawn to Buddhism over the years. And in the not too distant past, started really studying Zen um, more deeply, or I wouldn't even say studying, working with a Zen teacher more deeply. One of the challenges of a profession like mine is I talk to a different person every week who has their own program for right. how you get better, right. you know? And so what I end up finding is I'm doing a little of this and a little of that, and I'm hopping all over the place. And I finally hit a point where I was like, well, what I need for my own life is to just pick an area and go, you know, try and go really deep in. So for me right now, it's Zen. Yeah. So what is it about Zen that attracts you? I can't articulate it. Um, Which is probably the whole point of Zen, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to, to some extent. I mean, it. I was first introduced to Zen when I was in high school. It was probably the first spiritual interest of mine. Um, and I loved the aesthetic and I loved the idea. I think I right away got some sense that there was a way to live with my mind in a more peaceful state without having to change external conditions. Right. Um, but I do like Zen. Zen seems very simple. It seems very direct and it seems very intense. And those are all qualities that that I like. You, you certainly are much um, better versed in it than I am. But I've you know, from from my elementary knowledge uh, have really responded as well to the idea of the practice uh, that it's not something that's necessarily not at all given to you. It's not revealed to you necessarily, but that it's something that you work toward. Is that a, a fair estimation uh, of the activity? It is. It is. I think, I mean, all Buddhist traditions will say that, that, you know, ultimately mm -hmm. this is something to be done, not something to contemplate. But Zen is, Zen 
is really strong on that point. I read a line the other day that trying to understand this, you know, through your intellect is trying to trying to like hit the moon out of the sky with a stick, you know? So yeah, Zen gives me a lot of encouragement, which I need to not make this an intellectual process. I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of reading on spiritual things over all the years. And I've, and I've done a lot, a fair amount of practice, but I haven't done as much practice as I've done reading by a long shot. And so I need encouragement to practice, to, to, to do instead of learn and read. What has that practice taught you so far? Because I think it's always a, a lifelong learning journey. Um, what's it taught you so far about the difficult emotions and that, that desire to be um, sometimes it can be sometimes a pathological desire to connect. I know that sounds kind of strange, but um, sometimes we're so desperate uh, that we can't just be alone and be silent with ourselves because we're so desperate to be surrounded by others or, or connected with others. Um, what has it taught you about sitting with difficult emotions? Well, I think it's taught me that that they're not to be feared as much as mm. I thought they were. Now, nobody likes them and I don't like them, right? But if I had to sum up the Buddhist teaching in one sentence, which will get me in trouble with all kinds of Buddhists, um, (laughs) would basically be like, don't run away from the difficult emotions. You can face them and you can see what they're like. And ultimately what you'll realize is that they are just waves that pass through. Now, this is people who have severe trauma. This is a different animal. And I want to, I like to call that out, right? Like, I don't think it's not a good idea necessarily if you had severe trauma to sit down and go, oh, I'll bring up the worst emotion and sit here with it. Right. right. So, yeah, yeah. but in general, that's, that's what, you know, kind of what I got, what I get from, from Buddhism about dealing with difficult emotions is that we can, we can try and make them go away. And there's lots of strategies to do it. I would say my life has been a, a um, long experiment in an increasingly refined and sophisticated ways to not feel bad. <laughs> going, from, going from the really, you know, clearly bad idea, like putting a needle in my arm, that's a pretty strong reaction to not liking right. how you feel. But I've gotten increasingly sophisticated, right? And the, the most sophisticated form of it is, okay, I won't turn away from them, which right. then, of course, turns into, for a lot of us, we hear like, well, just sit with the emotion. So we sit with the emotion. And I'm like, all right, I sat with the emotion for like a minute. Why is it not gone yet? Mm. You know, and so, but I think that's the, that's the path. There was a line that we had a guest named David K. Reynolds on, and I don't know why I always come back to this line, but, but it really strikes me. And he said that when you're in control of your behavior, you become free to feel your emotions fully. And that really hit me because when I was not in control of my behavior, uh, particularly bad emotions could send me to some pretty bad places. Mm. But once I was in control of my behavior and I knew that I wasn't going to run off and get drunk or start doing drugs or I wasn't going to do anything destructive, all of a sudden I could sort of just allow the feelings to be there more and allow them to kind of come and go. And, and that was a big turning point for me when I realized like, oh, a feeling can come and it can pass. There's a phrase I love, which is emotions are not emergencies. But for a lot of us, right. they are. They feel like they're an emergency and we have to do something. And, and that's where it's one of the practices of, of Buddhism helps you to sort of, mindfulness helps you to sort of 
tweeze apart what's going on in an emotion because they can be very overwhelming. But when you can sort of stop and start to tweeze them apart, you start to go, okay, well, there's a feeling here in my body and there's a thought that's here in my head. And there's another thought that's running off telling me what the future is going to be like. And when you start to take those things apart, none of them individually are as overwhelming as the whole package. But when the whole package shows up, boom, like that, Then it's like, oh, I can't take it. And we run away. Yeah, especially uh, you have no idea how to deal with it. It's almost like the the secret to happiness is realizing that it's okay to be unhappy. <laughs> yeah, that there's a lot to that. There's a lot to that. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness or meditation, and they're not the same thing, but sometimes mm-hmm. they are, mm-hmm. um, has, has helped me to sort of be able to take those big globs of yucky feeling stuff and mm-hmm. tweeze them apart enough that none of them are so bad feeling that I can't cope with them. Now, do you think that's the reason that we so often, you know, feed the wolf uh, to use your, your, uh, um, the parable that, that you use, um, to feed the wolf that doesn't serve us, that that's more of the reacting, mindless reacting, uh, than it is, uh, either non-reactivity or, or responding in a more mindful way? Is it that we're just re- reacting out of, um, impulse, I guess? Is that what causes that? I think... I would, I would say, I think we are reacting. Um, I do think that most things come out of reaction. I don't know if I would say it's always impulsive mm. because I think there's a lot of cultural conditioning also. Sure. Um, you know, I think that embedded in the human sort of condition is, well, actually in any living being condition is move away from what's painful, move towards what's pleasant. We can Mm -hmm. see it at the most basic cellular level. So that's sort of built into us. But I think that when we don't, when we're not a little bit more clear on what wise action is, we end up feeding the bad wolf. So a lot of times it's reactive. Yes. It's, I don't feel good. So I take a drug, I take a drink, I eat. Mm -hmm. Right. But there's also some pretty culturally um, embedded things that are a lot deeper than they're not just momentary reactions. And, and this, I would look at something like greed, right? Greed is, greed is a deeper, longer term approach to life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that even the concepts of, of pain and pleasure too, are, are to a degree culturally and personally, uh, conditioned, you know, things that are, for, for example, I've, uh, relatively recently taken up the practice of uh, going into a sauna and then taking a nice cold shower (laughs) in cycles. I don't know why I got that idea. Somebody told me it was a good idea Uh, and it was miserable. It's absolutely it's as miserable as it sounds uh, at first. But now I find I actually crave it and I take a lot of uh, of pleasure uh, from doing that because it actually does feel good once you get into that that kind of habit and practice. So I, I think that not to say that everybody should go out and take ice cold showers after after baking themselves. But I think that what we <laughs> what we learn to find pleasurable or painful or well, that's it, actually, that we learn to find certain things pleasurable and certain things painful based on that which we've conditioned to find uh, pleasurable or painful. Yes, there is, there is certainly a fair amount of that. We are very conditioned beings. That's another key teaching of, of Buddhism is we don't, you know, we don't really see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. I'm right. paraphrasing Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People there, but that's, a, that's pretty much a Buddhist idea. We are very, everything is a, is a, is a result of causes and conditions. Yeah. Yeah. So what have you found, um, how many people have you interviewed uh, for your podcast? Do you, uh, an estimation, unless you know, uh, two hundred and eighty some. Two hundred and eighty some. Wow. Um, any common yeah. 
any common themes that you've uh, noticed over that 280 plus uh, interviews? It's interesting because I don't know. Well, yeah, there's there's lots of common themes. Um, and I sometimes try and direct the people I'm talking to towards certain themes because they are, I sort of see them as part of the show. And what I'm trying to do with the show is, yes, I want to present people's work clearly and authentically, but but I also, you know, I try and orient the show so that people are getting a similar message over and over. Cause I think we need to hear things about 25,000 times before <laughs> they sink in sometimes. Um, you know, but I think some of the common ones are, we just touched on one of them, right? Don't, you know, don't avoid your emotions. That doesn't really work. Right. You know, I think another one that's really there an awful lot is that action matters, right? I say this phrase all the time. Sometimes you can't think your way into right action. You have to act your way into right thinking. Right. So, you know, what we do matters. Our actions really matter and our, and our, and our actions and can actually change our moods. And so, you know, action matters. That's another one. I think another one that is, was a little more surprising to me has been about the importance of connection to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I, I, I came from a more of a Buddhist background where I thought the answer is within, right? If you just go within and, you know, go sit in a cave long enough, you'll find all the answers. <laughs> right. And while I believe there's some truth to that, it's become abundantly clear that a good life really does involve having good, strong connections around right. you. And so we those are a we couple a of the closed, uh, We're not a closed system uh, as people, we are not. Right. We are not. Nope. So then how do we, wh what are some of the lessons that you've learned from other people that hasn't come from, you know, within the, uh, within the echo chamber, within your own mind, uh, seeking <laughs> nirvana or whatever it is. But, you know, sometimes I, I notice that, and I think you mentioned that you're a dad. Uh, sometimes we can learn more from our kids uh, than, than we ever thought possible. We can learn more from the things that challenge us the most than we thought possible. So what have been some of those, those lessons that you know, you couldn't have, you couldn't have discovered from within. Well, I think one is just how hard it is to change anyone else. Mm. I heard a quote the other day that said, essentially, if you realize how hard it is to change yourself, you would realize the utter impossibility of changing anyone else. Right. And so if you have kids or you, know, doesn't really, you don't even have to have kids to have that, you start to really realize like there's only so much that we can do to get someone else to change. Right. People change on their own time when they're ready and we can, we can be, we can encourage that process. We can help facilitate it, but we sure can't make it happen. Yeah. Well, when did you reach... Uh, that state of change where you realized that something something had to give when you're when you're experiencing your addiction that is probably about two years before I actually got so oh yeah <laughs> well yeah I mean I started you know I started making attempts right to get sober I mean I I hit the I hit the oh man this something's got to change phase a bunch of times and I tried all sorts of things that were not really good like oh I'll just move away. Mm. If I do, if I move away, that'll work. I actually tried that one twice. Didn't work. Um, so there were, you know, I think, I think, you know, multiple years before I actually got sober, I think my sobriety process was a little bit of, you know, it, it, I think there were two things that were happening in parallel. One was I was learning what it might actually take to get sober. Mm. Like, oh, okay. You know, I would go to, I'd go somewhere and they'd say, well, you know, in order to get sober, you need to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. And I'd go, all right, I'll do A. Mm -hmm. Right. And then I wouldn't get sober. And so, and then I'd come back again. They'd say, you got to do A through G. And I'd say, well, I'll try A and B this time until eventually I found the point where I was kind of like, these are all the things I need to do. I became right. really willing 
And then I think the other process there of learning was really learning that there was nothing left for me in drugs and alcohol. The problem with those things is that they do work for a long time or people wouldn't do them. And they often will still at the end, if your life is so miserable, such as mine was, they'll give you 15 minutes of relief. And 15 minutes of relief can seem like an awful lot in that wasteland of misery. And so I think, you know, I think those are the two things that anybody who's getting sober kind of works their way through. They learn what it's going to take to get sober, what are the actions, and they hit a point where they really see for themselves very clearly, like, there's nothing left there. Yeah, I, I read um, a little bit of research, or, at least, or reporting on some research, I should say, um, that was fairly controversial at the time, and I think still would be, that many addictions, and it depends on the substance, has a certain lifespan, essentially. That it, And it's, it sounds similar to what you're talking about. That's what reminded me of it, that they tend to, you know, start with the the uh, proverbial gateway kind of ramp up. Uh, they peak, and then something's got to give. the The ground falls out, and then they they fade away. Is that something that that you think is accurate from your experience on the ground, uh, or is there something else going on there? Can can does it follow a different trajectory? No, I think a lot of people do outgrow it. Right. Mm -hmm. If you went to a college campus on any weekend, you would see a whole bunch of people who met several of the definitions of alcoholism. Right. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You you know, like blackout drinking continuously, continuing to drink when you have consequences. Right. right? But the vast, vast majority of those people will outgrow it as a problem. Right. Right. And I'm not even saying they're I'm not saying they're alcoholics now. I'm just saying that the vast majority of people will engage in behavior with substances that that is not you know, is not healthy. If you saw an adult doing it, you'd be like, what is the matter with you? Like, well, and it's a different context too, right? It's a different context. So most people do outgrow it. A lot of people don't. Right. Right. And, and so I, I, yes, the, 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 the literature on addiction is so confounding, right? Because the honest truth is nobody knows how to fix it consistently. Right. Right. You know, AA, AA has, you know, you can go to an AA meeting or anywhere in the world tonight and find lots of people who have been sober a long time. Mm -hmm. So to say that AA doesn't work is is nonsense. It does work. Mm -hmm. There are people out there who are sober, lots of them. But does it work for everybody? By no stretch of the imagination does it, right? Right. Um, And so the, the truth is it's so complex we don't know, really, I believe when people are really honest and, and most people don't necessarily want to be honest because they've got a book or something to sell. But if we were right. really honest, the honest truth is we don't know how. We don't know what it is that caused, caused me to get sober and 20 other people I started trying to get sober with to not. Right. You know, well, I mean, the, people the, are dead. Yeah. The reality is that there's probably uh, like with mental illness or anything else, there's probably many different pathways to get to that state. Uh, and it pro- that probably is what at least partially determines the many different pathways to recovery is matching the right type of recovery, the right intervention yeah. to the way that you got there in the first place might depend. That's very well said. Yes. Yes, that is true. And then I also think you know, there are like mental health, you know, a severe mental health diagnosis, a severe addiction diagnosis, your whole life is kind of upside down. And so, you know, we can look at things like getting people into treatment, but things really matter. Like, do they have a job to come back to? Do they have a safe right. place to come back to? Do women who are, who are getting sober have access to childcare so they can go to meetings? There, the number of factors is, is nearly endless, right? And so, so yeah, it's really hard to know what will get some people sober, but, but people do, lots of people do. And lot, you know, there are, you know, I've met a good number of people who are like, you know, they were 40, they've been drinking their whole life. They finally said, that's it. And they stopped. Right. And that was it. 
that was it. Yeah. I, you know, so it's, you know, I think what you said is a really good one. I think, you know, where, where are they when they, uh, that leads them into, into alcohol or addiction? What is it that caused it? How, how bad is the deterioration of the brain been? These right. things are, you know, these, these things are bad on the brain. What's the, you know, I, I had this conversation with Gabor Mate once, mm. who's a, you know, a, a trauma specialist and an addiction specialist. Yeah, and, a great Canadian as well. Yes, indeed. And, and his, his perspective was, you know, that the more damaged somebody is, the harder the chance is they're going to recover. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, I, I don't think any of us should say I'm too damaged. I don't think that's a useful way to look at it. Right. But right. I think it does allow us to extend some compassion, particularly people who've been able to get sober and look at everybody else. You're like, well, if you just did what I did, you'd get sober. Well, right. It's not really that simple. Is there, do we hold uh, some responsibility as a society for allowing people to get that damaged, uh, or is it you know there there are some who view it as all their fault essentially that that they chose to use those drugs or they chose to be that way? Um, which end of the spectrum do you fall on? I, I, I fall in the middle of almost any spectrum, um, right. and I would probably fall in the middle here. I mean, ultimately, yes, you know, if if somebody, you know. There's a lot of there's a lot of evidence that points to if you have a certain number of adverse childhood experiences, right, you're going to become an addict or an alcoholic. The more of them you have, the higher the percentage becomes, right? And adverse childhood experiences are things that range from you know neglect all the way to to sexual abuse. So I think people who are you know people who are really damaged as a child, somebody's responsible for that, right? right? But the problem is when we get to be an adult, and this is where I think a lot of, I think a lot of things get, a lot of times we get caught up here is that Mm -hmm. even though the person was not at fault. So let's just say, you know, let's just take Sally, right? And Sally was, was raped multiple times as a child, right? She, she was victimized horribly. It's not her fault. I wouldn't say that she's an addict or an alcoholic, it is right. completely her responsibility to get better, though. That's the problem because right. nobody right. else can do it or will do it. It's not fair, but it's true. Right. Well, and I think that's the struggle for me, right? Because the um, essentially if the if uh, the way I see it is if the machinery that she's using to make that choice and the choice is required to get better because you are in charge of your own recovery. And that doesn't only apply to addiction. That's certainly across the the mental health spectrum. But if the if the machinery that you're using in your brain, in your body, in your society around you to make the decisions needed to get better is itself broken uh, or built in the wrong way because of adverse childhood uh, experiences, then it's much more difficult, I, I think, to, you know, yes, you do have that responsibility, but it's much more difficult for you to use that responsibility, I think. Oh, it, it totally is. I, I'm fascinated by the concept of freedom of choice. How much choice... Right do we really have, you know, and, and to apply this to, to, this goes back to what we said earlier, everybody's a a result of causes and conditions, right? And at what, you know, is the, is the choice that I have the same as somebody who was, you know, again, to use our analogy, somebody who was abused multiple times as a child, do we have the same level of choice when it comes to whether we put a substance abuse into our body? I don't know. Right. Yeah, this is this is probably the key concept that I tried to communicate in my uh, TED talk and in, in my own crude kind of way. This idea and the, the talk is called Why We Choose Suicide. Spoiler alert. The whole talk is about how we don't because right. the, the whole idea that the 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 uh, 
thing that I was using to make this choice, my brain, uh, was itself malfunctioning at the time. Yes. Uh, so it wasn't really a choice, even though, yes, I stand by the fact that it was a it was a decision. It was a series of decisions. But those decisions, you know, once all the alternatives fade away, it's not really a choice at all. And just because you can't see the or just because the alternatives are there, it doesn't mean that you can actually see them. Yeah. No, I do think that is a good summary for for your TED talk. And I think it's I think it's true. I think this is one of those things and it's having sat on both sides of this right it's mm. really it's a really i'll call it interesting in my good moments and completely maddening in my bad moments that idea of of choice because there are people you know if you've got a mental illness the thing that can think its way out of the problem is broken right right it's like it's like a car you know a card can't repair itself right it's Right. That may not be a very good analogy now that I think of it, but um, it's, yeah. Well, the car is not going to drive itself to the mechanic. That, then. Right. That's <laughs> right. Because it's broken. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that's exactly right. That's that's a better use of it. And so, you know, yeah, it gets back to this. What's the amount of choice that we have? Is everybody working from the same level of freedom of choice? And I don't right. think we are. The implications for that are vast. I don't know what they are. I mean, when you when you start taking those far enough, you start going, well, oh, my goodness, what does that mean? What does that mean about the way we're, we treat addicts and the mentally ill and criminals right. and all of that? What 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 does it mean? Because the flip side of it is that there is account, you know, there does have to be some degree of accountability in some way. Sure. I don't. So the, those pro the problems that are raised by that are so thorny. I don't begin to know how to unpack them. But I do think that. Some people are just a lot sicker than others. And I don't mean that in a, yeah. in a negative way. I just mean that in a very true way. And, and, and no, the and sicker you true. are, the harder your recovery is. I think that's true in a physical disease. I think it's true of a, a mental illness of, of any sort. And, I, and I, tend to think of, I tend to think of addiction as a mental illness. I mean, I don't know that's exactly how yeah. we classify it, but it, it's got a lot in common with a mental illness. Well, and I think the the researchers, clinicians, and society is moving more and more uh, toward that direction. I, uh, you know, I think that the the addictions communities, uh, the community uh, writ large, and the mental health community, which is now you know, well, has been quite active for for some time. Um, I think there are people on both sides of that equation who would disagree. Uh, you know, who would say that maybe somebody with an addiction might say that they're not mentally ill. Maybe somebody with a mental illness might say uh, the opposite. So I, I think there are camps on either. side. Side, but I, I think we're moving in that direction. I think we're moving in that direction. Yes. And I think of a lot of people who are addicts, alcoholics have mental illness also. I think the, the dual diagnosis may be higher than we assume. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think it's interesting what you said about, um, you know, putting my words to it, but uh, essentially the deeper you are underwater, the longer it's going to take you to swim back to the surface uh, and many people drown uh, before they're able to to get back to the surface. So what can we do uh, to effectively help people? I mean, sure, we can't make the choice for them. Uh, I, and we've tried for basically all of human history to force choice uh, on people. Uh, so then how do we get them to see the light or the wisdom or even just make the small steps necessary to improve their lives? Or should we even do that? That question is personally sort of sitting right in the center of my life. I mean, one of my very best friends is dealing with an addiction and it's really bad. And he's been hospitalized. He's um, been been close to suicidal. Um, and there doesn't 
there's a whole bunch of people around him who love him, who, who can't seem to help him get to the place where he's able to, to, to get through this. And he's gotten through it before, you know, he did all, he got through all this before. And so right now, I mean, I'm a little bit in the throw my hands up in the air. I have no idea camp. Um, you know, I know what we can do can make it, I know we can make it worse. I think that's something that we, we, we tend to do. I mean, I think that if we just, How's that? well, if we hound people to get better, if we tell them yeah. that they're bad, yeah. I think those are the two biggest, yeah. like really just hounding people, telling them that they're bad. You know, the, the data seem the jury seems to be out on the whole tough love movement, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there, it used to be fairly common wisdom, like, well, you just, you cut somebody like that off. And I'm not sure that's the wisdom as much anymore. You know, the, what I take out of it and what I've told people for years and after having been an Alan on myself for years is you do what keeps you sane. Right. That there's a reason, there's a reason for the behavior somewhere under there. There's a reason for the behavior, but you as a person who's in love with or really close to someone like that, the best thing you can do is figure out what's going to keep you from going crazy because living with an addict or an alcoholic or being really close to one will turn you sick yourself if you're not careful. Well, and and part of free choice too, I think, is realizing that others have free choice too, that that we can't control what they do and giving up control is sometimes the hardest thing of all. Oh, it's probably the hard, the hardest thing of all yeah. <laughs> for, for, you know, I, I feel like my spiritual life seems to be one long process and in, in continually learning what's controllable and what's not. And, and, you know, spoiler alert, less of it's controllable than we think. <laughs> yeah. So then how do you learn, uh, especially in a relationship uh, with somebody else who's struggling, uh, how do you learn what's yours and what's theirs? What, what's in control, what's in your power uh, versus what's not? Well, I think getting help is really useful, going to Al-Anon or getting a therapist or finding somebody to talk to. But yeah. ultimately, what someone else chooses to do, the actions they take are not, you know, th- those are not in our control. Yeah. You know, I, I, we can have influence. We have influence over people for sure. Sure. To set up the conditions for them. Yeah. 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 And we can, you know, we can talk with people and, and you know, try and help them see different perspectives or talk about, you know, maybe why getting sober or getting help is a good idea or, you know, you could do all of that, but ultimately what they're going to do is, is what they're going to do, which I don't think calls for like, oh, just don't do anything for them. I don't think that's it. You know, like, you know, I'll call my friend and be like, Hey, would you like me to come over after you get out of treatment today? And so you got somebody around you for a little while, like that's a skillful way to try and help. Right. You know, Oh, would you like a ride to and from, um, you know, don't have alcohol in the house. You, You can do things that set people up to, to have a higher chance of success. Right. But ultimately you can't stop that choice, that ultimate choice. One of the, I think, most challenging um, emotions that I've I've tried to help people with and that I've experienced myself is the guilt uh, when somebody else makes a choice that you had zero control over, that you had zero input on, but you really didn't want it to happen. You know, somebody dies by suicide, somebody mm-hmm. overdoses or, or just can't get their life uh, to the place where you know that they deserve and could be if they if if they had the right supports. What do you tell people or, or maybe if you've even dealt with this yourself um, to work through that guilt of not being able to help somebody? I, I, you know, I, I don't know, except to say kind of what we've talked about. It's not your fault. Yeah. You know, it's not your fault. And I think this gets really difficult, particularly for parents. Yeah. 
for parents, there's a lot of, a lot of this guilt. And, um, you know, I think these are the sort of situations that are better served by having a professional help you than trying to figure out by listening to a, to a podcast. Listen, I'm, to not podcast. That, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that flippantly, nor no. am I saying that us talking about it on a podcast isn't a good idea because we should. But, but when you start talking about things like the, the guilt over a child's suicide, like yeah. that, that's the sort of thing. I don't think, I don't think we're made to get through that sort of thing on no. our own. I think we no. need help. And, and so with addiction and mental health and all that, the system isn't perfect, but there is help. There are places out there, there are support groups, there are. And so I just encourage people to, to get, to get help and particularly family members, you know, like there's a reason that Al-Anon exists and it's not a small program. There are a lot of Al-Anon meetings because what people have found over the years is you live with an alcoholic, you will start to go a little crazy. Mm -hmm. And so you go to Al-Anon and you get support and, and that's, you know, that's the Al-Anon program. How do you stay sane? How do you drop the guilt? And how do you live best you can while somebody else really close to you is destroying their life and yours by, by, um, by proximity to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you you say this because, um, I hear from parents uh, to, to use that specific example, parents who have lost kids to suicide or, um, you know, brothers or sisters, cousins that are dealing, trying to help somebody who has an addiction, um, and the guilt that they feel, and it is difficult, but to be able to tell them that, no, that's actually a legitimate, valid issue too, and that you don't have to go through this alone, that it's not your fault. Yes, but anybody faced with that kind of situation would be would be suffering with the exact same kinds of feelings. So, you know, I think caregivers, family members, parents, these are the people who are on the front lines of mental health, on, on the front lines of uh, trauma every single day, and that their role needs to be uh, validated and that they need to be given just as much help sometimes. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, it really is, it really is so hard for people, you know, and I think I've got a lot of experience in this area. And if my friend doesn't make it, I'm going to, that's going to be hard for me to deal with. And I'm going to, you know, there's no way that I'm not going to have the questions. What could I have done? What could I have sure. done? What could I have done? Right. And that's normal. It's, it's, right. That's normal. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's normal. And so, um, now I do, I do think that, that caregivers and people who are around, people who are addicts or who have mental illness, those people really need support as much. Yeah. And, you know, I I think that, um, really realizing that there's no right or wrong way uh, to struggle, both as a, a person who is struggling, but then the, the, also the person who's struggling to help the person who's struggling. You know, there's no right or way, wrong way to do that. And I, I think that sharing these stories is important because that helps people to realize that. Um, but also, hopefully, it opens up a door for others to get more meaningful, uh, in-depth assistance as well. Yes, I hope so, too. Well, you know, this has been uh, a really enlightening uh, conversation uh, for me. You know, we've had people on the show in the past who have uh, talked about their experience with addiction and who have have talked about what they've learned from it. Um, So what are you hoping that, you know, somebody who's listening to this is is in that that fuzzy phase of realizing that that their life isn't tenable uh, the way that it is right now with the addiction that they're facing or whatever, uh, but is still struggling to find the direction? What would you tell that person who's still trying to find their way? I would say just keep trying. 
you know, try something and then try again and then try again and then try something else. You know, it takes people a long time. I remember a really dark point in my life where I had gone into treatment. I came out of treatment. I had done, I'd gone to like 30 days of AA meetings. I was really serious about it. And after about 30 days, I went out and drank again. And I remember whatever I look back on it now and I'm like, well, that's, of course, that's perfectly normal. But at the time, what I thought was, I'm doomed. Mm -hmm. I thought, I went to treatment, I went to the meetings, I did the things they said, and here I am using again, I'm going to die this way. And what I didn't know then was this can be a multi, multi, multi-step process, right? And that it was by continuing to try again and try again and try again that I eventually figured it out. And it's why the phrase in AA that is used so much is, is you know, just keep coming back. Mm-hmm. Because if you keep coming back, if you keep trying, you'll find something that works. But we get discouraged very, very quickly. And I would say mental illness is very, very similar, right? Like it can take time to find out what are the right meds for you? What are the right combinations of meds? How do they go together? All that. So it's very easy to get discouraged after we put in a really hard effort a time or two, and it seems to be for not. It's the next time or the next time. But if we keep trying, I think we get there. And that's kind of my, my message I would say to people is if you're in a spot you don't want to be in, try and make it better. And if that doesn't work, try again and try different things and ask for help, but just keep coming back. Yeah. What are you most grateful for now in your life on the other side of, of that effort? I think I'm grateful for all that it taught me about what it means to live a good life. I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have delved as deep inside myself as early as I did if I didn't have to. Mm. And what I find is that I think most people, if they're lucky, hit the stage where they do do that. Where they eventually, and some of them do it on their deathbed, But most people eventually find uh, like, huh, I chased all the things in the world that I thought would make me happy and I got some of them and it it didn't necessarily work. And so they start to go deeper. And I feel like I was kind of forced into that very early on. And I would say I'm grateful for that. Well, it's certainly given you a lot of wisdom, Eric. And uh, thank you so much for sharing that wisdom uh, with me and and with all of our listeners as well. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Take care. That's it. That's my conversation with uh, Eric Zimmer on So-Called Normal. Go check out his podcast, The One You Feed, uh, available everywhere. Uh, Check out my conversation on his podcast if you want to hear more from me for some reason. Uh, But look into all his episodes. I mean, he has so many of them now, hundreds of them, as as you heard in, in our conversation there. Uh, and all each so unique uh, and interesting. So uh, go check that out. If you enjoyed our episode today, share any quotes or thoughts or questions that maybe you have had. Uh, you can connect with us on pretty much any social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, whatever else. Uh, I'm at Mark Hennick at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. And you can also check me out at MarkHennick.com. Uh, I want to thank uh, our people who make this podcast possible every single week, every single Monday. Uh, the folks here at Entertainment One, uh, producer Adrian and Kimberly, uh, our wonderful editor Dave, who brings it all together in the end to get it out uh, to you and into your
your ears. So thank you, uh, Kimberly, Adrian, and Dave for putting my voice in people's ears. Um, I'd like to ask you to follow us, uh, us and subscribe to the show. Head over to Apple Podcast, uh, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, we're everywhere else. But head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, leave us a rating at the bottom, leave some comments for us. That would be great. It, it really does help. And like I say, share uh, these episodes far and wide. Um, I think that's it for me. I don't think I'm, if I did forget anything, I'll mention it on the next one. All right, that's it. I'm Mark Hennick, and this has been So Called Normal. Normal.